Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. I have four dogs, I got my girl, so I'm gonna go ahead and do the right thing and just get away and uh, come back and hopefully nothing's damaged. So they're predicting a lot of water. Um, I live in South Tampa, so it's a flood, flood zone area, so yes. This one feels different. Yes. Florida prepares for a monster storm with landfall expected tomorrow. Governor Ron DeSantis is going to be put to the test, forced to actually do his job when he's used to spending most of his time hanging out on Fox News and owning the libs. Is he up to the task? The approaching hurricane has also changed the January 6th committee's plans. But we've gotten our hands on some documentary footage of Roger Stone laying out Trump's plot to steal the election, which the committee is expected to show when the hearing is rescheduled. Also tonight, the Senate takes up the Electoral Count Act to protect democracy. And we're gonna try to answer this question of why Republican lawmakers still genuflect to Trump and promote his lies. But we begin with Florida, bracing for Ian, a major hurricane that could submerge large portions of the Gulf Coast. And it will be a test of leadership. Governing, you see, is hard. It's unsexy and not always television friendly. And governing through a crisis, well, that is where the proverbial rubber meets the road. President Biden has had to juggle a bunch of competing crises while still trying to deliver for the American people. I mean, it is what it is. That is the executive gig. And today, the juggling act was on full display. Biden spent the day talking up his plan to lower drug costs and bolster Social Security, unveiling a plan to end hunger by 2030 and reaching out to Florida mayors ahead of Hurricane Ian's landfall. I told each one of them my conversation separately. Whatever they need, I mean this sincerely, whatever they need, contact me directly. And they know how to do that. I have a lot of personnel down there already. We're here to support them in every way we can. On the other side of the spectrum, while Biden has been grinding out the sometimes thankless job of governing, Republicans have been waging these giddy little culture wars, you know, to own the libs, while ignoring their citizens' basic rights and needs. Take, for example, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, who told a crowd of supporters how thrilled he was to leave Jackson, the state capital, in the midst of a devastating collapse of the city's water system. This after he spent years bragging about how successful he's been at blocking funds to fix the water crisis in the past. Then there's book banning Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who's drawn massive protests and walkouts by high school students over his use of his executive power to force schools to out transgender students' birth sexes against their will. That's the priority of a whole entire governor? In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has spent the majority of his term waging wars against Disney while pretty openly running for president on the side, sticking Florida taxpayers with a $2 trillion bill in the process, while also attacking books and history and masks and Venezuelan migrants who aren't even in his state, flying them from Texas at exorbitant rates to Massachusetts. Again, at Florida taxpayer expense, 
maybe even breaking the law in the process. And let's just be clear. He is doing this as his audition to have Joe Biden's job. But is that what voters really hire an executive for? While DeSantis is fighting with Mickey and scoring hits on Fox News, Florida teachers are fleeing his state. Climate change is ravaging the coast, and the state's home insurance market is literally collapsing, leaving thousands of Floridians in danger of having no coverage for their homes when natural disasters like Hurricane Ian strike. And that last bit is important, because preparing for and dealing with hurricanes is kind of what Florida governors do. And making sure that people have insurance, well, it is kind of key. Right now, Ian is a fierce Category 3 hurricane curving its way up the Gulf Coast of Florida. It is expected to strengthen into a catastrophic Category 4 over the warm Gulf waters with anticipated landfall tomorrow evening. The entire Gulf Coast of Florida could suffer devastating storm surges and rain. Both mandatory and voluntary evacuations are in place for more than two and a half million people in multiple counties where schools have already been closed. President Biden has preemptively declared a state of emergency and already sent aid. I directed my team to surge federal assistance there before the storm hit. FEMA has already deployed 700 personnel to Florida, and the governor has activated 5,000 state National Guard with another 2,000 guards coming from other states. FEMA is also proposing and prepositioning 3.5 million liters of water 3.7 million meals, and hundreds of generators. Which, again, is literally the job. Joining me now, from Ana Maria Island on Florida's Gulf Coast is NBC's Kerry Sanders. I'm also joined by Democratic pollster and strategist Fernanda Mondi and retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore, the former commander of the Hurricane Katrina Joint Task Force. But, Kerry, my friend, I do want to start with you. Talk about how things look, where you are, and how bad local folks expect this storm to be by tomorrow. Well, Joy, I'm way down here by water's edge to just sort of share a feeling. The water here that I have my feet in, it's warm. In fact, there are parts of the Gulf of Mexico which are feeding in that are 89 degrees. So, you know, we know that a hurricane gets its strength from the warm water. And at 89 degrees, that's like throwing gasoline on a fire. I mean, it is just incredibly warm, at least four, in some cases, five degrees warmer than we would typically have. So that's why we're going to see perhaps even more of a rapid intensification of the hurricane. Where I'm here on Anna Maria Island, pretty much a ghost town. Same thing down on Sanibel Island, Captiva Island, uh, on some of the smaller islands like Yusepa, Cabbage Key. That's because they have these mandatory evacuations because they know in addition to the wind that will be whipping, there will be something called storm surge. So you see the water here behind me right now. The wind will be so strong at 100 plus miles an hour, it actually blows the water and that water comes up like this and it sort of kind of goes in a dome, but it has nowhere to go. So it just keeps traveling. And the prediction is that the storm surge could be as high as 10 feet. So right now I'm at sea level. I'm five foot five, 10 feet way up there. As we get a little bit closer to the homes, some of the homes are up maybe about two, two and a half feet. So it is possible here and on other islands like Sanibel, Captiva, it's possible that the water will actually wash over 
the islands. So there's a great amount of concern. The authorities said, got to get out, mandatory evacuations. We know that some people have decided to stay behind. And the police and fire say, look, if you stay behind and you're in the middle of the hurricane and you do dial 911, nobody's coming to the rescue, Joe. Joy. Yeah, real quick, um, to stay with you just for a second, Carrie, because I only have to, anyone who's lived in Florida for any length of time, and I lived there 14 years, uh, it's where I met you, my friend, you just have to say Andrew. I mean, th- this was such a catastrophic change in everything about Florida. And, and you know, it, Jeb Bush was sort of made by his handling of hurricanes. Can you just talk just briefly about how important managing hurricanes is to the job of being governor in Florida? Well, you know, during Andrew, it was a complete failure on all levels in terms of the response afterwards, especially with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. FEMA, which, you know, is supposed to, and this case, and we have seen in recent other hurricanes, have gotten professional. At the time, it was like a political dumping ground where they just gave people political favors, stuck them into these jobs. They didn't know anything about responding. It is now very much a professional organization. And we know, for instance, Kevin Guthrie, who does the state version of that here in Florida, that they have experience. They, uh, Kevin, in fact, worked at uh, Pasco County. He's dealt with hurricanes, but he's also dealt with sinkholes. He knows what has to happen when you respond in an emergency. So I think that when we just heard the president talk about prepositioning uh, yeah. water and food and generators and all, that is pretty much a very much a professional operation as opposed to what we once had. Lessons learned from Andrew. And of course, you know, the hurricane, if it does come in just a little south of here, it was 2004 when Category 4 Hurricane Charlie came in. And so there are lots of people who remember that. And there are a lot of people who say they will work forward from those memories of how to better respond to this hurricane. Joy? Yeah, indeed. Carrie Sanders, thank you very much, my friend. Stay safe. Really appreciate you. And, you know, the other sort of one word name that you can just say that everyone understands what it is is Katrina. Uh, And General Russell Honore, people know you from, you know, having been in the middle of that. Just talk about just the level of government um, sort of intersectional cooperation between the state and the federal government that is critical and crucial to doing this right. Yes, uh on any given day, a storm like this can break and overmatch the state's capacity. It can overmatch the federal government capacity. Uh, and we have to work in harmony. And we put a lot of money in the federal government to be able to help the states respond when they become overwhelmed. And by the fact that the governor asked and the president has declared this a major disaster and FEMA has uh, already sent in the region four directed to set with the governor from Atlanta to Florida. Uh, joining a very experienced team in the state of Florida who since Andrew as a mark point, another mark point was Wilma and another mark point that same year was Katrina, have developed procedures. All the governor have to do is read the script. And he's doing a Mm. darn good job doing that right now. They have procedures in Florida to protect the people uh, as best they can from a storm this magnitude. But I think, Joy, this will set a new bar. Uh, something they had not seen or America has not seen before if this storm come in the way it's predicted. And and I lived through Wilma, so I definitely remember that. And it's terrifying to actually live through it. I want to bring you in for an on. Uh, to the very point that uh, General Honor has made, like today, Ron DeSantis did not have room to troll or play troll. He actually has to play governor now. Here he is um, in part of the press conference. This was about an hour ago, that he, a little over an hour ago. This was his press conference talking about the federal response. 
we feel like we have a good relationship uh, with FEMA. Um, you know, I'm happy to, to, to brief the president if he's interested um, in hearing what we're doing in Florida. You know, my view on all this is like, you know, you got people's lives at stake, you got their property at stake, um, and we don't have time for pettiness. We got to work together to make sure we're doing the best job for them. So, so my, my, phone, my phone line is open. I mean, that, that happens to be true. You know, I mean, over the course of the last of this summer, we've watched the Florida insurance market collapse. Um, we've watched a lot of drama coming out of that governor's office that's been around immigration, even though Florida's not even close to the state with the most uh, migrants or the most people who are seeking asylum. Florida's like way at the bottom below Ohio. And yet the governor has been just fixated on this one thing on immigration. You know, is it arguable if this doesn't go well and we pray that it goes well and for you down there, my friend as well, um, that he's now really in a spotlight for the actual job he was hired for, not for the trolling. Yeah, how shameful to hear those words. Uh, too little, too late, Joy, because as you said, all of us here in Florida in this very ominous and sobering moment now, we're on the brink of not one but two catastrophes. First, there is the catastrophe of Ian, which, God forbid, I mean, have any impact on human life and any other folks that are in the path of that storm, including, by the way, my parents and many of my friends up and down I-4 all the way to the panhandle. The problem here is the second catastrophe, which was wholly preventable. And that, as you said, is the property insurance catastrophe that Ron DeSantis and the Republican legislature in this state have conscientiously avoided doing a single thing about. They've been rolling the dice and they've been lucky over the last couple of years. We haven't really had a major storm, but now we got a cat four catastrophe knocking on our door. And after the damage to life uh, and, and property comes the accounting. We don't have a private insurance market. They're fleeing the states. Rates are skyrocketing, Joy. And despite the begging and pleading of members of the uh, Democratic side of the legislature, even some Republican senators who said, please, we have to solve this property insurance crisis. Ron DeSantis did nothing, partially because he's in the pocket of the insurance industry. But even state senator Jeff Brandeis, who is a Republican from St. Petersburg, the area that is now in the direct line of that direct strike, said they did nothing. They didn't do nearly enough. And now the people of Florida are going to face this catastrophe, not once, but twice, because Ron DeSantis and the Republicans that have been in charge of this state for 28 years, Joy, have done nothing. It is shameful. It is unacceptable. It is disqualifying. And as you said, governing is hard. Trolling is easy. They chose to troll when they could have governed. You know, and, and Russell Honoré, <clears throat> two million Floridians are on the move. Now, we don't know if they're leaving the state or where they're going to move to. It's a bit ironic now that you might have Floridians having to actually pour over the borders um, and go north uh, and get out of the state of Florida in the exact same crisis that we've been talking about on a trolling level in that state for a long time. What do you think that the federal government should prepare itself for if you're talking about two million Floridians on the move and some of them actually have, actually have to leave the state? What kind of coordination needs to be happening right now in these southern states to prepare for? Because remember, Houston received hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, I should say, of people who had to flee Louisiana because of Katrina. Well, I tweeted about this earlier today. I think the uh, federal government needs to prepare some ships to come in behind the storm. Uh, the National Guard has done a good job. They've got some helicopters from other National Guard units. And we need to have federal helicopters on standby. And the Department of Defense need to buy into that and follow hurricanes like this in. 
This is a scenario, a nightmare scenario, Joy, that we've been planning for since I got in this business and most of my time in the Army, that a major storm like this would hit Miami is where we thought it would go. And now it's going across the entire state. That needs to be dealt with. And they've, all the pieces are there. The, the, the team know what to do. But the overmatch of the capacity they have locally will soon be overmatched if the storm does as it is protected, predicted yeah. to happen. So that, that has to yeah. be worked out. And the role of the governor right now is easy, Joy. All he has mm. to do is get on TV and tell people stuff. The test for this government will be in recovery when they yeah. make decisions where the money go and how it go. That will be yeah, the real test because recovery is a living hell dealing with the federal government and the bureaucracy. We'll see what kind yeah. of governor he is doing recovery. When it's occur- and, and, and be careful about attacking people who have to move to save their own Absolutely. lives and safety, because you never know when it's your people that have to move, when it's your people who have to migrate, when it's your people who have to get on that road. Um, so just 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 a thought. Uh, Fernanda Mondi, uh, please stay safe. Uh, retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. And up next on the readout, no hearing tomorrow for the January 6th committee, which faces major decisions on its next moves. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Tomorrow's much-anticipated return of the House January 6th committee, the first hearing in nearly two months, has been postponed as Hurricane Ian advances toward the Gulf Coast of Florida. The storm has halted what Trump and his MAGA supporters in Congress could not, a series of highly effective hearings, as laid out by member Jamie Raskin as he rebutted Republican criticism last week. You pulled the plug on the investigation you originally advocated because Donald Trump didn't want it. Let's tell some truth. Would you like You're talking truth? about truth effects. I'm giving you the truth. Again, you guys boycotted it because you wanted to put pro-insurrection members on the committee. And so we ended up with a bipartisan committee of people really interested in getting to the facts. And you know what? This is what you guys can't stand. America listened to it because we had real congressional hearings and 25, 30 million Americans watching because we told the truth about Donald Trump's assault on democratic institutions and the right to vote in America. And maybe you can't handle the truth, but that's the reality and nobody's laid a glove on any of the testimony that has come out during those hearings. You can't handle the truth, said Jamie Raskin. We have learned that among the tranche of new evidence we are likely to see when the hearings are rescheduled, 
is documentary footage from Trump's former advisor and longtime friend Roger Stone, filmed by Danish filmmakers in the months leading up to the attack on the Capitol. That includes a clip where Stone seemingly predicts four months before the election that they would never accept the results if they lost. What they're assuming is that the election will be normal. The election will not be normal. Oh, these are the California results? Sorry, we're not accepting them. We're challenging them in court. If the electors show up at the, at the Electoral College, armed guards will throw them out. I'm the president. F*** you. You're not stealing Florida. You're not stealing Ohio. I'm challenging all of it. And the judges we're going to are judges I appointed. F*** you. You're not stealing the election. Hmm. That clip is a reminder that the idea that an election can simply be overturned is a longstanding belief of Roger Stone's. Since he was involved in a nearly identical scheme in Florida in 2000, complete with the same false claims of voter fraud. Stone then used those claims of mass hundreds of operatives to mass hundreds of operatives on Miami-Dade County, staging the so-called Brooks Brothers riot, demanding an end to the statewide recount on George W. Bush's behalf to take away from the legitimate statewide recount and force Bush into office. The postponement of tomorrow's January 6th hearing adds to the many moving parts for the committee to contend with before it completes its work. It's expected to interview Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, in the coming weeks. As The New York Times notes, it must still decide whether to issue subpoenas to Trump and to former Vice President Mike Pence. It also has yet to settle on whether to enforce subpoenas issued to Republican members of Congress who refused to cooperate with the inquiry. Joining me now is former U.S. Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, who is a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and Neil Katyal, MSNBC legal analyst and former acting solicitor general. And Neil, I do want to start with you uh, because Roger Stone We've done this, talked about this on the show before, is an interesting character because he had exactly the same idea 20 years ago. And so did John Eastman. Um, this idea that you just simply say, I, we won, and then you effectuate maybe even a little violence to see to it that no one really challenges you. Let me play another clip from him. This is from November 1st. This is before the election, two days before the election. More Roger Stone. Let's just hope we're celebrating. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it will still be up in the air. But when that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. Yeah. You're wrong. F*** you. And his response to that clip, um, his response to it today is, the lesson of 2000 when the election was in dispute, James A. Baker got George Bush to declare victory. He was considered a genius. I suggest the same thing. And they say, oh, well, that's criminal conduct. Is there a difference? Oh, yeah. He is anything but a genius, Joy. So first of all, this guy is letting a camera crew, camera crew go and follow him around and videotape him in the weeks leading up to the January 6th riot. And even if the film doesn't show that he directly committed a crime, I have no doubt that it's going to have intensely valuable insight for both the January 6th committee and federal investigators. And I think that Roger Stone is likely to soon join Steve Bannon in the esteemed club of Trump henchmen who received pardons for their criminal convictions only eventually to commit further crimes. So, yeah, you know, no like this clip that you just showed is really good evidence that Trump and his allies had prepped their election denial strategies far before the election ever took place. You know, Trump's whole claims they weren't genuine concerns about election fraud. This was a pre-planned thing in the playbook, a desperate, undemocratic attempt to cling to power. Right. And I mean, the thing is, Senator Jones, I mean, it, it was fairly, if you looked at the polling, it, it 
Seemed pretty clear to me that Joe Biden was going to win. And, and, you know, and there is some reporting out there that Trump was concerned that he was going to lose. And so it's kind of hard to claim that they had a genuine belief that there was some sort of fraud when they're saying before the election even takes place, a month and then two days before, oh, we're just going to say we won. Meaning it doesn't matter no, if I, we won. I think you're absolutely right, Joy. I mean, it, to, to me, everything, the first thing that hit me when I was hearing all of that is that these guys knew they were going to lose. They were setting up what is going to happen after they lose. And Neil Jensen is absolutely right. I mean, the fact that they thought they were going to lose, the fact that they probably knew they were going to lose and setting this all up is pretty damning evidence about the plans that were going to be put in place going forward that I think the January 6th committee has done a pretty good job of putting some compelling evidence for connecting all of those dots. Yeah. And, and Neil, this is a question I have. It, does the committee need to prove that in addition to knowing they were going to lose and having a plan in place, this Eastman style memorandized plan to sort of play with the electors, did Trump need to also know that you had Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and Three Percenters meeting the day before January 6th on January 5th in the garage in D.C. and that they had violence in mind. Does, does the committee need to make that connection, that these guys, you see them there, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, you see Enrique Tarrio on the end, you see the lady in the front that's an Oath Keepers. Does he need to know that they also plan to use violence in order uh, for no. him to be victim, guilty of seditious conspiracy? No, I mean, it's what we call in the law gravy. I mean, it's like it'd be if, if that evidence does exist, that establishes a seditious conspiracy or at least a conspiracy to commit violence between Trump himself and the Proud Boys who are going on trial right now as we speak. But there are other conspiracies that the January 6th committee has been investigating, as well as federal and state investigators, Joy, including this whole fake electors plot that John Eastman and others uh, cooked up. And there doesn't need to be any overlap between the two. It's kind of an old law all the way going back to the Supreme Court case in 1943 of Kotiakos. You can have multiple different conspiracies. Uh, you know, prosecutors just need to prove one. And, you know, at yeah. this point, Donald Trump is facing many, many different investigations into many conspiracies. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just one last note for you, Senator um, Jones. So Chris Kyes, this is the guy who got $3 million up front. <laughs> um, and he was smart to get his money uh, because Trump doesn't really usually pay his lawyers. He got $3 million retainer to lead Trump's legal team. He's now not the leader. What do you make of the fact that he's essentially been demoted um, after they decided who they wanted? They picked Judge Deary as their choice to be special master. And turns out, surprise, surprise, he's a real judge. And he's acting like a real judge and he's not helping them. Well, you know, look, I, I don't think it's any uh, surprise that Donald Trump's want immediate positive results. And when he doesn't get them, he'll go to somewhere else where he thinks he can get those immediate uh, results. Uh, I, I think the legal strategy that his, we've seen coming out of Mar-a-Lago and some of the other cases, by the way, I, I just I've, I've been baffled by, you know, including the fact that these guys can't put at least some kind of controls on their client. That he doesn't talk. Some of the yeah. some of the things he said to Sean Hannity was really damning the other day. So you know, sometimes you just got to clean sweep, start with a fresh team, and move on, and hope the damage can be uh, resurrected. 
I'm going to nominate Chris Kyes as one of our Who Won the Week finalists because he got $3 million to not have to work, and he didn't even have to be a good enough lawyer to keep his client off TV. He might have just got himself a free $3 million. Former Senator Doug Jones and Neil Katyal, thank you both very much. Coming up, in a rebuke to Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell has come out in support of the Electoral Count Reform Act, huh? which would reassert that the vice president does not not have the power to change electoral votes. Ain't that a kick in the head? We'll be right back. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. A win for democracy appears to be in sight. The Senate is voting on a bill that would be the first legislative move to prevent another January 6th. The Electoral Count Reform Bill clarifies the role of Congress in certifying presidential election results. In short, making it harder to steal a presidential election. Today, the bipartisan effort got a major boost when Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell endorsed it. Strongly support the the modest changes that our colleagues in the working group have fleshed out after literally months of detailed discussions. I'll proudly support the legislation, provided that nothing more than technical changes are made to its current form. Seven Senate Republicans voted yes to to report this bill to the full Senate. Senator Ted Cruz, of course, was the lone no vote, calling it bad for democracy. Okay, Ted. Which brings us to a very puzzling but very important question for our democracy. We understand why the Republican base is determined to keep Donald Trump in office forever. I mean, he feeds their sense of entitlement and grievance, makes them feel like victims, and also triumphant over the libs at the same time. But why are Republican elected officials, some of whom despise Trump, who believed his impeachment was warranted, why do they keep going along with him in his big lie? Just last week, a House version of this very electoral reform bill passed. Democrats unanimously supported it and were joined by just nine Republicans, enough to put on two hands. None of those nine will be members of Congress next year. This was their chance. This was their opportunity to rid themselves of Trump by securing elections, to prevent stolen elections. If that isn't a vote for democracy, we really just don't know what is. And yet so many of those Republicans, 203 of them, couldn't support it, leaving us with the perennial question, why? Joining me now is former Republican Congressman Carlos Corbello of Florida, who's now an MSNBC political analyst. Thank you for being here, uh, Representative Corbello. I, 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 thank you for being here. I want to I just explain it to me like I'm five, okay? Because I understand why Mitch McConnell voted for this bill. I totally get it. It seems surprising to folks, but I'm not surprised. We know from lots and lots of reporting, names he's called him. Mitch McConnell despises Donald Trump. 
He was a means to an end. He was a means to get his magical judges on the court. He got his judges. He don't need Trump no more. Doesn't need him. So I understand Mitch McConnell. He's a ruthless person, does ruthless stuff, but he really doesn't like Trump. There are other people who are in that same category, (laughs) Representative Carvello. Why do they not take easy opportunities to rid themselves of this man? Joy, the difference between Mitch McConnell and many other Republicans is that Mitch McConnell, aside from not liking Donald Trump, is also not afraid of Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell is one of the few Republicans who has actually stood up to Trump on a number of occasions, not all, but certainly on a number of occasions. And so he's not Donald Trump. The problem in the House is that a lot of these Republicans operate in fear. They are constantly looking over their shoulder, hoping that Donald Trump will not show up in their districts to support a primary opponent. So it's very difficult to lead when you're afraid. I do think, Joy, that once this bill gets out of the Senate, if it comes back to the House, it should get more Republican support. But without question, reforming the Electoral Count Act to prevent the kind of disaster we had on the 6th of January of 21 should be a fairly easy issue to get to yes on. It should be, right, because do you want Kamala Harris to have the power to overturn the election? Because if you don't support this, that's what you're saying. You're saying that lady can just do whatever she wants. And OK, anyway, let's move on. Here is Matt Gates. He's not afraid of Donald Trump. He's his homie. Here is Matt Gates, And he's on Steve Bannon's show, because of course he is, saying what he thinks the priorities should be if Republicans take control of the House. Here he is. If we don't engage in impeachment inquiries to get the documents and the testimony and the information we need, then I believe that our voters will feel betrayed. And we can do that without the Senate and without the White House. And that's why it should be investigations first, policy, uh, bill making to support the lobbyists and the PACs as a, as, as a far, far diminished priority. Carlos Carvello, these people get paid six figures of taxpayer money to legislate. And he says, no, bill making to support the bill making is a diminished priority. We just need to impeach Biden for whatever. It doesn't even matter what. It doesn't even matter that we have no chance of actually convicting him in that in the Senate. Just do it because our base just needs the drugs. He sounds like a crack dealer. Is that really what it is, that they are just performing for the most bananas part of their base all the time? That's what he's doing. I mean, Joy, this is a problem for House Republican leadership for two reasons. Number one, House Republican leaders have told their members to please only talk about three issues in the in the last few weeks of this campaign, inflation, immigration and crime. They think those are the issues they can ride to victory. Clearly, Matt Gates is not following those instructions. He's he's in another world. Secondly, if if Republicans do win a slim majority in the House, Kevin McCarthy and uh, his lieutenants are going to have to find a way to include Matt Gates in their coalition because they're not going to have very many votes to spare if he wants to become speaker. So this is a big problem for Republicans. And the, the what makes the problem even bigger for them is that people like Matt Gates really don't care what they think. No, they don't. And, and by the way, the other thing, the other sort of Occam's razor answer is that their actual real agenda, Rick Scott has told you what it is and Lindsey Graham has told you what it is, basically control women, make them give birth, 
and destroy Social Security and Medicare. And they don't want anybody to know that. But, you know, some of their senators just telling y'all. Uh, former Republican Congressman Carlos Carvello. It's, it's a puzzle. Thank you very much. Appreciate you being here. Okay. Jury selection began today for the trial of, in the trial of Oath Keeper leader Elmer Rhodes. He calls himself Stewart. Um, and four other members of the militia for their actions leading up to and on January 6th. They are charged with seditious conspiracy or were trying to overthrow the U.S. government. We'll be right back. Jury selection today began in the trial of Oath Keepers leader Elmer Rhodes, who calls himself Stewart, I guess to sound cooler, and four of his associates for their role in the January 6th insurrection. The five are facing charges of seditious conspiracy, the most serious crime leveled so far by the Justice Department, in the Capitol insurrection probe. The judge is, w- is working to winnow down a pool of 150 prospective jurors using written and in-person questioning. But in the case of January 6th, perhaps the biggest threat to our democracy the country has ever seen, what does an impartial jury even look like? Is it, is it even possible? According to NBC's reporting from the courtroom, out of that pool of 150, 45% say they hadn't watched the January 6th committee hearings, and 40% hadn't ever heard of the Oath Keepers. One prospective juror was disqualified for answering the written questionnaire saying, I think January 6th is one of the single most treasonous acts in the history of this country. Here, here. Another potential juror who was struck today told the court she strongly believed January 6th was an insurrection by far right groups intent on taking over the Capitol and overturning an election. And joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, MSNBC legal analyst and former federal prosecutor. He was also in that courtroom today. So, Glenn, give us a flavor of this. I mean, those two jurors, I think, speak for a lot of people probably watching the show right now. How many of the prospective jurors did they speak for? Uh, you know, it's an open question because they're only midway through jury selection. They're trying to qualify a group of 45 potential jurors. And then once those 45 are qualified, each side will get a series of what are called peremptory strikes, where they can strike jurors for any reason at all, except race, ethnicity, or gender. Um, But here's the thing, you know, people often uh, believe that we try to select jurors who know nothing about a case. And in a high profile case, that's difficult. In the highest profile case, and this is one of them, the seditious conspiracy, the attack on the U.S. Capitol, you know, it's really hard to get people who haven't heard something about it. But the key is not whether they heard about what happened uh, on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol or not. Frankly, I question the um, the fitness of somebody to serve who knows nothing about the attack <laughs> on our Capitol. Um, but yeah. the key is, if they know something about it, as long as they can swear under oath to the judge that they can put all of that out of their minds and decide the case based solely on what they see unfold in the courtroom, that's what makes a qualified juror. Let me ask you this. If you're going through and you're a prosecutor in this case, are you looking for people, let's say, of police officers in their family? Does that help or hurt? Because there were police officers on both sides of this thing, right? We know that a guy just got sentenced uh, for to seven years uh, for what he did to the the, the beating and tasing, almost killing um, Officer Michael Fanone. He got a seven year sentence, you know, but some of the people who were doing the things that were done to Officer Fanone were also cops. So are you looking for people who are pro-law enforcement? Are you looking for people who have uh, attitudes about Donald Trump? Um, is being in D.C., meaning you live close to the Capitol, maybe have some feelings about the Capitol? Like, what are you looking for as a prosecutor? Yeah, this may sound like a trite answer, but I'm looking for jurors who can be fair. Because just as a defendant is entitled to a fair trial, 
the people of the United States are also entitled to a fair trial. And in a very real sense, as a federal prosecutor for 30 years, I spoke for the people of the United States in criminal prosecution. So was I looking for a juror who was a little bit more pro-law enforcement um, than anti-law enforcement? Of course I were, but it has to be within reasonable bounds. So, for yep. example, every every jury that is selected is asked the question, can you judge the credibility of the testimony of a police officer fairly, just as you would judge anybody else's testimony? And you have to wait to hear the response from the juror. And, you know, jury selection is an intensely individual endeavor. You're eyeballing every single juror as they're answering the questions. You're trying to gauge not only their fitness, but their sincerity, mm-hmm. their candor when they're answering these questions. Let me ask you this. This is about the defense. And the New York Times is reporting that lawyers for the five defendants are set to argue at the trial that the Oath Keepers were waiting on January 6th for Donald Trump as president to invoke the Insurrection Act, a revolutionary era law that grants the president wide powers to deploy the military to declare unjust unrest in emergencies. Can they claim that? They weren't a real militia. They didn't work for the government. They weren't in the army. Does that even matter if Donald Trump, he didn't do it, but would that even matter? You know, sometimes defendants have a good legal defense. Sometimes they have a good factual defense. The Oath Keepers on trial have neither. You know, it it feels like they're trying to argue they were following Donald Trump's orders. And in a sense, they were because Donald Trump ordered an attack on the Capitol to stop the certification of Joe Biden's win. But they're not even arguing that directly. They're saying we thought we might be enlisted into assisting the government if Donald Trump invoked the Insurrection Act. Let's set aside for a minute that that is not even a legal thing, but they weren't even following orders. They were hoping they might get some orders that they could then follow, which also wouldn't have been a defense. You know what I think they're trying to do, Joy? I think they are hoping to confuse just one or two jurors into hanging up the jury, because based on what I've seen thus far, they really don't have much of a defense. Yeah, it's like we're brown shirts. That doesn't seem like a really strong defense, right? Like we wanted to be brown shirts. I don't think that sounds good. Uh, let's talk about this. The the sentences that we've seen, as I just mentioned, you, you did have one January 6th defendant get seven years. Some of the sentences have seemed really light, like 10 months, you know, probation. They haven't seemed that strong. You're starting to see a little bit longer sentences for the people who were the most violent. When you look at these sentences, some of them have been short of what the government wanted. People say they want, the government says they want 10 years, they get seven. Do you think that these sentences are in line with what seems reasonable to you. Yeah, these are really difficult to gauge because sentencing is also an individual endeavor. You have to take the history of the offender, any expression of remorse and whether it is legitimate or not, just putting on a show for the judge. So yeah, I do expect as we move through the more serious cases and then as we move up into the command structure of the insurrection, I'm hoping that the sentences will increase. You would, one, one would think. Glenn Kirshner, always a pleasure. Thank you very much, my friend. And up next, the war, well, it isn't going well for Russia. And now comes sham referendums asking four occupied areas of Ukraine if they wanted to be part of Russia. Well, guess how that turned out. We'll be right back. In this country, you have a twice impeached former president and his MAGA followers continue to cry wolf over what was a democratically run free and fair election in 2020. If you want to see what a rigged vote actually looks like, just look to the sham referendums that have concluded today across four Russian occupied regions of Ukraine, all to give Russian President Vladimir Putin a pretext to annex those regions. 
Early votes from this Russian choreographed process is showing more than 96% of residents in those areas in favor of annexation. That is according to the Russian news agency, which you can totally trust. Perhaps that should not be all that surprising with reports of people being forced to participate at gunpoint. These numbers are mirroring a similarly contested referendum in 2014 that led to Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. Just like with Crimea, this is being slammed by Ukraine and its allies as a violation of international law. This may be Putin's only strategy left as military-aged men in Russia are rushing to the border to escape his partial mobilization order of up to 300,000 more Russians to head to the front lines in Ukraine. Stunning images show miles of cars caught in traffic jams, leaving for neighboring countries like Georgia and Mongolia, reportedly waiting as long as 48 hours. Officials in Kazakhstan Kazakhstan say 98,000 Russians have already crossed into their country over the past week. Throughout Russia, protests have broken out, recruiting centers have been attacked, and a recruitment officer was shot and seriously wounded. And remember, all of this is being done to feed into one man's obsession with power. We can all sadly relate to that part here in this country. And that is tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.